My guest today is Jimmy Keane, piano accordion player extraordinaire, originally from Galway, now resident in the Windy City of Chicago. Jimmy has played with groundbreaking bands such as Bahola, the Greenfields of America, and most recently, a tour with the Irish Rovers. I'm a huge fan of Jimmy's playing. It was always one of my career goals to play with him live, and I got to do that many times over the years at the wonderful Milwaukee Irish Festival and when we played in Chicago. Jimmy is a force of nature, one of the true gentlemen of Irish music, a really, really kind man, incredibly funny and witty, and of course, a brilliant musician. So please... Enjoy this episode of the podcast with the great Jimmy King. Anyway, Jimmy Keane, I'm going to say straight off the bat, I can't find Bahola music online. I had a CD many years ago. I lent it to my father-in-law, who would probably watch this podcast. He may still have it. If he does, I hope he finds some way to digitize it, because I'm one of these clowns that doesn't actually have a CD player anymore. But that music, at the start of We Banjo 3, at the even notion of starting a band was so instrumental, pardon the pun, and so influential because there's an awful lot of CDs that there's, there's great music recorded, right? And then I, I would have found there's a lot of a lot of albums that are choreographed and they're arranged and everybody plays the same notes and it and it's it there's an oomph that's missing. And I heard the Bahola album and I was like, holy shit, this is the real deal. Like the energy that came off it every time I listened to it. I'd be driving in the car, I was in a job at the time, and I'd be like levitating, kind of going, wah, come out of the song, into the real, fantastic. It was at 11. would have the roads by now. <laughs> so that's my introduction to your music, was through Bahola. And I was like, I have got to meet this guy. It was like a dream at that time. I was like, imagine if I could play music with you. And, I, and then I got to do it, and I wasn't disappointed. But the drive was was immense. So I'm just going to start with Bahola and say, talk a little bit about that. Well, thank you very much for the kind words. And I mean, there were whatever, you know. But you, you are in luck, though. I'm in the process of remastering and reissuing all the Bahola albums, you know, as I speak. I'm trying to start the, the liner note process. So that's taken a bit longer than uh, that I anticipated, you know. Plus, I was away for two months that really ate into that time. But... Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I was lucky, I suppose, in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I grew up playing with, you know, some great musicians. And, you know, I, I mean, I suppose the only bad band I was in was one of when I'm playing solo. That's the <laughs> But, yeah, it was just, you know, especially after years of playing with the late Mick Baloney and Robbie O'Connell, you know, I wanted to do something where it was local. I mean, obviously, you know, I played many times with Liz Carroll growing up here in Chicago. And Marty Fahey, but they weren't really into the touring stuff at that time, especially Marty. And Liz had her own, you know, brilliant career going as she, she still does. So I thought it'd be nice to have something locally sourced. And so that was basically the, you know, instead of having to play every two months, you know, you could play every twice a week, maybe, or three times a week, you know. So that that was really the 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 start of it, you know. And then, you know, got one. Oh no, keep going. Yeah, you know, I mean, what you were mentioning, I mean, I did, I mean, you, you know, I mean, we, at some points we were cultist heads, right? But we did like competitions and all that stuff. And if you were in a duet or trio or any type of band situation, a Katie band, you know, it would be note for note. It would be, um, you know, you break, you phrase it the same way, you break it the same way, you know, you stop here, even though I, mind you, I hate all these stops at Katie bands now. Anyway, that's way off tangent. But, you know, it would be really, you know, really tight duet trio quartet playing. And, you know, years messing around, I always thought this, this, it has this, something different than that. And one of the first ones actually to, when, when I was growing up, was listening to Billy McComiskey and Brendan Mulvihill. 
And uh, they had a group called the Irish Tradition, but it was really, it was really just the, Andy O'Brien was singing and playing guitar, but it was really the two of them playing and they were complain, completely different things to each other and it sounded great. They were playing off each other. And, you know, Liz and I had kind of done that as well, but actually hearing someone else doing it, you know, a thousand miles away. And I said, oh, this is great. So that always kind of stuck with me. And I always figured if I would do something, I would like to do that instead of actually playing precise. And I love precise playing, you know, and, you know, tight duets. And But I mean, playing, you know, instead of playing like this, playing like this, you know, seemed more exciting. And plus, you didn't have to practice. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> That's the, it's the music that switches me on the most is when it's the interplay and you pick up on a little run that somebody does and you follow them and it just... It's it's tight and loose at the same time. It's the most exciting to play. Well, I think that's the 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 best thing, or you know, the the, the best thing about bands is because it, it's really when you're listening and you're listening to as much, you're not listening to what you do, or you're listening to what everyone else is doing and respond to what they're doing. That's the that's the cool part, and only that comes from playing together on a regular basis. Yeah, you know, because you don't know, you kind of build a sense, like you know, you're playing. You're playing with the, you know, the brothers or we banjo three or whomever, or even, you know, I mean, in that case, you would kind of, you would kind of know what their style is, what they'll do this, or they may have to go off like this and it'd be easier to follow. Even though nothing's planned, you really, you really start moving similar. Yeah. You know, do that playing the, with the, some guy you meet yesterday on the street and playing the tune with him tonight. It's going to be like, whoa, this, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So are you Chicago nation? No, I'm not. As as Mick Maloney would say, I was uh, I was born in London through no fault of my own. <laughs> you know, uh, my parents, my dad was from Connemara, from Tierney, and uh, my mother was from Kerry, uh, from a place called Dungagan Balanskelligs, or as my dad used to say, the Arsend of Kerry. How, how do how do they meet? You know, in the 1930s, there was a government relocation program. It was the Land Commission. They moved, uh, they they wanted to do an experiment. So they took, asked 12 families, I believe, from, from Connemara to move to Mead and set up a gale tuck. And on, like a couple of weeks before the original 12 were supposed to go, one of the families uh, dropped out. And then they asked my grandfather, Jim, uh, if if he wanted to go, and he said yes. So he brought, I think it was seven of the eventual 13 kids with him and his wife, uh, um, Mama or Mora, Mary, to Rathcairn and just outside of uh, Trim, maybe an hour and a half outside of uh, Dublin. During the same time, there was this little contingent of uh, Kerry people who also moved up to Meath. And my mom and her parents, and I think there were a couple of other neighbors, they moved up to Meath as well, just outside of Trim, there was a place called New Haggard. So they ended up meeting locally at a dance. But So this is back in the 30s. So I think my dad was born 28. My mom was born at 33. So this would have been, you know, there were just kids when they moved up. I think my mom moved up a couple of years later than the original the plan. And then, you know, they got, they got married or... Yeah, they got married. No, they got married in England. So they moved to England uh, to work, got married. I was born. Um, we stayed there about a year. Then we moved back to Ireland and then stayed there for a few years. The horse, my dad, went out to Chicago. And myself and the mom came a couple of years, well, a year or so later. So I think we we got here. I got here in 1963. The horse. Yeah, and then moved back a year, and then we stayed here for good in 1965. Okay. Yeah. Ireland Ireland was a very different place in the 1930s. Oh, it would have been, of course. Yeah. And he was 60s. Why, why, did, why was your dad known as the horse? It was just a nickname he had earned as a, he was a structural iron worker here in Chicago. And, you know, the, you know, the joke was, you know, the strong as a horse. So he was known as the horse. There was another guy, another Galway guy by the name. Uh, he was Flynn, and his his nickname was the Pony. That is strong. And then there was another guy, uh, another guy from Galway as well, and his nickname was Donkey. So, I don't, 
<laughs> but they're all they're all from Kerry. They're all from Galway. But just says, okay, we'll go with. It. Feels like your dad uh, worked out the best of, of those, those nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's you know the nature of the thing. But I'm sure. Look at you know everyone. You know, I'm. Uh, you know how the naming structure is in Ireland, especially in in Connemara. And I would imagine too, it's another Irish speaking parts. There, you're named after. In reference, because there's so many people named like I'm my, my grandfather's Jim, my dad's actually Jimmy, and I'm James, but I hate James, so so I I just call myself Jimmy, but I'm actually uh, so I'm but in like in the family lineage I'm James Jimmy Jim. Right, <laughs> I I ended up writing a tune about it too, so that's fine, <laughs> and I'm not from Tennessee yet. It's, it's, it almost sounds like he could have been in the Italian mafia with the lineage names. <laughs> Was there so how many siblings did you have then? If you're uh, your your dad had thirteen, right? Yeah, it was like one. I think one eventually died uh, early on. Uh, mom, my mom had no kids. I'm no sis. Yeah, she had at least one, and he's the idiot. Uh, she. Uh, <laughs> She was the one. She was the only one in her, in her family. Uh, so I have a, I have a sister and three brothers. So there was five of us. That's some quick math off the top of your head, yeah. right? <laughs> and did they all go to Chicago as well? Well, um, my sister was born in Dublin, so she came, and then the rest were born here in Chicago. You know, once we were settled in. Do you remember the move? Do you remember moving from Ireland to Chicago? You know, vaguely, I do remember though the the first. I know this the, the the first person I met when we arrived in Chicago. Now, I was I was told this at the time, and I knew him ever since. Was uh, Kevin Henry, the late Kevin Henry, picked myself and my and the mom up at which is now O'Hare Airport, and uh, you know, and that's so I've known literally all my American life. I knew Kevin Henry. Sure. I'm asking Chicago Chicago life, yeah. Yeah, I met Kevin my first time in Chicago on the street in a three-piece suit in summer, and 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 sounded like he was in Connemara or in Ireland. I I I don't know where he came from, but he's Sligo, Sligo, Sligo made borders. Yeah, but it's like he had never left, and yet he had been in Chicago for for a very very long time. He was, yeah, late fifties, early sixties, and in Canada before that, and in England before that. You know, it was it was the it was the transition route for many Irish that came out to the states. Incredible. 50s, I should say. Yeah. So was it a very Irish upbringing in Chicago then? Irish community? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There, yeah, definitely the Irish community. I know that's, I mean, we, you know, we all had our American school lives and, you know, playing baseball, basketball, football. But particularly in the music, I was in, you know, I got involved early on. My dad was a Shano singer. So, and he knew, he loved music. So, even as a kid, I was brought around to every place that had music. So I grew up in that environment, you know, and then once I met all the other Irish musicians in Chicago, you know, then it was, that was the path going forward, you know. And I mean, I was lucky. I mean, I grew up with, you know, with Liz Carroll. So it was, you know, he couldn't have a better role model or, you know, hey, Liz, or someone to play music with, you know. I mean, not that it wouldn't be great. It was great playing music with Johnny McGreevy and, you know, Kevin Henry, but someone... You know, but they were older than us at the time. So it was great having someone, you know, your age playing, you know, and then later Marty Fahey coming up and that guy, I don't know whatever happened to him, Michael Flatley. He used, I think he used to play. <laughs> I'm only kidding, Michael. You know, so, I mean, we were, we were lucky in that regard for, for a large city, but it did have a small, you know, small tight knit uh, Irish music community. And music lovers too, which is more important, as much as important as, you know, uh, the musicians, you know, because sometimes musicians don't listen to each other, right? No, or musicians are not necessarily go to a gig, but no, I should. I'm already tease it. They were they were very supportive, you know. And uh, was there a lot of opportunities to play? Um, I mean, initially, I assume just kind of playing sessions and. To to play commercially, then like when did that when did that start for you? Oh, not so not so later. I think I did my first playing gig. I was in high school, and uh, the late Jimmy Considine, um, he was from Quilty and Ennis, and uh, Quilty and 
Yeah, Quilty in Eau Claire, sorry. And uh, he brought me, we played a retirement party in Chinatown for a, a Chicago police officer that just retired. So I think it was like a freshman or sophomore in, in high school. But aside from that, it was, you know, there were, you know, there wasn't really paid gigs per se, you know. So it started in the 70s when we got to, when we were, you know, maybe a, a couple of years after that I did, I used to play a few gigs with Liz, Liz Carroll. In fact, there was one gig we played. There was this place on the north side of Chicago. Uh, it was uh, it was owned by a Cary fella, and it was called the um, oh, uh, Jesus. Oh, like uh, now I can't think of it. But Cuz T and Terry Cuz T and uh, Tom Comerney was the guy's name. Ireland, uh, oh, the Ireland's thirty-two, and uh, Cuz T and lived a couple blocks uh, from the place. Cuz T and the great concertina player and. Uh, composer and so he asked us if we myself and liz would actually play in there on a friday night you know so i think i I was we were still in high school so you know we went up liz had the license at that time so she drove up and uh it it was an odd bar because it was one of these long rectangular bars which you'd walk in there was the there was the kunaminer guys on one side there was the carry guys in the middle, and then there was the Mayo crowd at the other end of the bar. So they're all kind of cloistered, which which was fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of natural. Sometimes, you know, there might be some intermingling. For the most part, there were the three groups. But they had a pool table, and and they had this little stage right in front of the pool table. But there's no such thing as shutting down the pool table while you're playing music. So... You know, we'd be up in this tiny stage and it was just the, no accompaniment, just Liz and I, you know, with a mic. Oh, here's your mic. <laughs> and there'd be people playing pool, right? And so you had to stop. When they were, if they were taken, if the stage is like, you my back to the stage and where the computer is now is the pool table. If they're up like this, taking a shot, and all of a sudden, you know, I was getting poked in the accordion. I was getting... We could, sometimes we just had to stop. And of course it was smoky in there. And then one night, uh, one, some, Liz got smoke in her eyes. And then she, so she couldn't, you know, she was trying to rub it. She said, Jimmy, play a tune I can see. <laughs> <laughs> so she actually wrote a tune called Play a Tune I Can See. Changed the name later, but it was kind of funny. But, oh, yeah. you know, playing in pubs, it's great. And it's, you know, kind of, when people are listening, it's great. If they're not, it's like it can be it can be torturous. I used yeah. to do a I used to do a session in Spittle in Galway years ago. And it was in it was in a small little corner underneath the television. And we would start at nine o'clock, which was perfect. And then I think at ten o'clock, match of the day would come on. So it was all of the soccer highlights from England that had been on sure. during the day. And as soon as that would come on, all the men in the bar would come and stand and watch the telly. And they were they were they were like three foot away from you. And we would be playing under the telly with this ring of like twenty or thirty men, five deep, watching and the sound blast. And the sound blasted. Yeah. And the sound blasted, yeah. Yeah. Complete, yeah. But a complete waste of time, yeah. <laughs> it's you know, it's funny that's uh because I've, I've done that a lot, or I still do it. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I'm playing with the, with the Pauline Keneally tonight. We do a regular Tuesday night session at the Galway Bay, and it's and it's 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 ba- it's basically a non-Irish crowd, and they're younger, but they come in. You know, the TVs are on, but they're off. The sounds off, right? And uh, but you know, they'll if we're playing a couple of tunes together, we stop at the end of those sets or those tunes together. They'll turn around and they'll actually clap. Which is great because, you know, and they're listening and then, you know, we started going, oh, and so they go, oh. <laughs> these are in their, these are people in their, you know, 20s and 30s, probably no relationship whatsoever to Ireland, you know, but uh, yeah, so it's great. So I think people, if they see you enjoying what you're doing, it makes it easier for them to enjoy it as well, especially if they don't have any choice. They're going to hear it one way or another, they're going to leave. Has that, have, has that, has that. Has that Irish community feeling, has that diluted over the years? I, You know, just, you know, by attrition, you know, the, I mean, the, the crowd, uh, I mean, all of the musicians, with the exception of, that I grew up with, with the exception of one or two, 
I mean, you know, the older people at the time, everyone's gone. You know, I mean, like, you know, Kevin Henry, Jimmy McGreevy, Joe Shannon, Eleanor Neary, Jimmy Neary, you know, Jimmy Coyle, you know, Pat Burke, you know, Pat Cloonan is around. He's from Connemara. He's like 93 or 94. Now, he still plays tunes every once in a while. He plays, I should say, he plays tunes a lot. He does online things. <laughs> you know, but for the most of Pat McPartland, but everyone else, you know, that we knew that was older than us at the time, uh, it's gone. And of course, you know, that I mean, it's just it's a generational thing. You know, that was, we started playing, we started playing, God, 58 years ago. I mean, that's a long time, right? And you that, and you probably started seven or eight or nine as well, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and so that's, yeah. And then, you know, I think it's just, you know, like anything else, there were concentrated areas where all the Irish would congregate or lived. But then, you know, they sp spread out, moved out of the suburbs, you know, just, you know. But it's still going. There's, I mean, in Chicago, there's, let's see, uh, Tuesday, two, three sessions on Tuesday, one on Wednesday, one on Thursday, Friday, nothing on Saturday, but then there's like four or five, four or five on Sunday, you know? How did, yeah, you, there, you, so there's music around. Did did your other siblings play, and how on earth did you end up on the piano accordion and not a proper instrument like the banjo? I promise there'd be at least one accordion joke, and that's it. Yeah, can I can I curse now? I was gonna say banjo. Yes. <laughs> Ops. Baron. There's my three curse words. You know, uh, you know, I I mean, you know, we lived. It was funny because we lived. We were next door neighbors with. Uh, you know, two fella Galwegians to you, uh, you know, Joe, Joe Cooley and Seamus, uh, Seamus Cooley here in Chicago when we, you know, we first moved not that far from Hanley's House of Happiness, which was with the great, the great uh, place for music back in the 60s and, you know, the uh, early 70s. And, uh, you know, and, and I mean, I heard Joe play, heard Joe play many a times, and, you know, Seamus, Seamus played the banjo a bit, you know, even though he's primarily a flute player, but he played the banjo with the, the Tulla, and, uh, but for some reason, my folks said, no, I wanted, I said, they, they said I wanted to play the piano accordion, you know, and then I asked my mom, how many times did she drop me, and, but she would never give me a solid answer. <laughs> but it was more than once. <laughs> oh, it does. <laughs> 120 times to the left at 41 for the right. It was great. <laughs> uh, what what age were you when you took it up? It's a big instrument. I was seven. Yeah. Oh, you know, I had I had like a uh, like a 12 bass accordion with, you know. And then I then I got a I ended up getting a, you know, a child's full size accordion, you know, like a student model. You know, which was forty-one keys and one hundred twenty bass. So basically, some version of that from that on. You know. So I don't know. I mean, what what made you what made you decide to play the banjo, or was it? I had a music teacher in in primary school when I was about seven or eight years old, and I, uh, what I remember is she came into the classroom one day and she said, "Who wants to play the banjo?" And I stuck up my hand. So thank God she didn't say who wants to play the piano accordion. Did you know what a banjo was, though? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I must have had some awareness of what it was, but I, you know, had no idea of Irish and bluegrass. Or I, my mom was looking after her baby when she. So my mom was on a maternity leave. Sure. As she was a teacher in the school, and so when Bernie would come to teach music in the school, she would leave her baby with my mom and. When I went home in the evening, there was a banjo in the house with a kind of a list of instructions on where to start. This is this notion, do this, and the rest is history. That's great. Mm -hmm. Is there a Rolls Royce of piano accordions? And do you already own it? You know, like banjos, there's pre-war this, and there's, you know, Gibson, and there's Epiphone, and there's Paragon, and there's, you know, Museums for 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 banjo? Are there museums for piano accordion? 
you know, there's music. Somebody was just sent me a link. There's, I think it's in New Jersey or someplace. There's an accordion museum. I, must, I, I know there's a link. Somebody just sent, hey, Jimmy, you got to go see this, you know, but it's an accordion. And there, it's, and it's, if you go in there, you can actually play the instruments. It's not like they're behind glass, which is, I suppose, the best, the best part. You know, but he has piano accordions, button accordions, you know, different variations of each, you know. Uh, but in terms of, you know, there was, there was, uh, I think unlike other instruments, the, the newer instruments made now are better than most that were made in the past, you know. And that being said, they're not all like that, but there are, you know, uh, there are certain ones. I mean, I think Honer used to make this accordion called the Gola, and I think it was like thirty or forty thousand dollars, you know. But like yourself, all the instruments are, you know, relatively expensive now, you know. Even for for especially if it's if it's a new instrument, you know. But I don't think they had the. It doesn't have the longevity as you know. It's not like a, a fiddle or a flute or a set of pipes, you know. Even button accordions. I mean, you know. Everyone for a while there was lusting after uh, gray boxes from the you know the fifties and the early sixties, mm -hmm. you know. But then there's some of the other boxes like you know I know uh, Dave Dave Munley has makes his own or has his own boxes made to his custom custom whatever customized to his <laughs> his taste. You know? And so I, so I saw the boxes said Dave you have you have more but you have as many button notes on the left side as you do on the right. <laughs> so it's <laughs> But yeah, so it's it's yeah. I mean, I my, my preference now. I have I have a custom made Valtuna, which is like forty six keys. Uh, I haven't been playing it for a while, so because it, because it's so huge, it just takes it takes a while to work up into it again, and more for the the bellows. But it's it's great, uh, especially playing with banjo because I can go down I can go down to the low C. You know. So, so, so the banjo has to stop playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. But, yeah. One of the funniest things I've ever heard was, uh, well, you said it to me, was I think it was our first year at Milwaukee Irish Festival. And Milwaukee, so there would have been 2012, Milwaukee were doing the banjo extravaganza. And so at the at the, at the the very end, at the scattering, they wanted all the banjo players, all the banjo players on stage, all the banjo players. And you were going up the steps with Mick Maloney and you were carrying your piano accordion. And it was before you had your hip replaced. And so you had a pronounced limp. And I, I like, be the clown, says, hey, Jimmy, where's your accordion? And he said, clearly I'm wearing it as a suppository. <laughs> it was so fast. I was, oh man, it's one of my favorite moments of my life. Yes. <laughs> Where did the quick wit come from? Do you practice those one-liners? Oh, it's just, I suppose it's just the spur of the moment. You know, it's like you say, you're listening, at, you know, and, and, you know, just, would you? Because I like to, I like to ask questions. Then just you know, that's how you learn about people or things, right, or, or subjects. So, you know, if you listen, then you, you know, and sometimes you know, a conversation may need a bit of levity. So, if you're listening closely enough, there's always some kind of a pun unintended, or you know, a line, a line that just opens up, and it's it's great. It's a great ice icebreaker too. Yeah, I've said far too many of those lines on stage, though. Jimmy, that's that's the problem. <laughs> 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 got into trouble so many times it's like oh no there he goes again <laughs> but it's funny you know i actually had a, a you know a long life with uh music with banjos you know i mean i remember uh in the 60s after we moved here you know uh i saw the dubliners on uh the ed sullivan show the same place that broke the beatles in the uh the u.s several years before and obviously Tommy make the Tommy Makeman, the Clancy brothers. And uh, you know, we were sitting there, and then my mom said, you know, I went to I know Barney McKenna. I said, why? How? And she said, Well, because because I mentioned she moved up to Trim. Well, Barney was raised in Trim, and I think for a while they went to the same school, probably different ages. 
but you know, so she she knew him. I was up there, and then fortunately, I mean, I got to meet Barney a few times over the years. And a couple of years before he died, I I went out to visit him in his. Um, he had a he had a farm or the family farm in Summer, I think Summer Hill, just outside a little outside of Trim. It was there for a couple of hours, you know, drinking tea and you know, and playing tunes, and it was great, you know, because at that time, you know, this is. I suppose what 10 years, 10, 10 years or longer now, but, uh, it, you know, it was great. And then of course, you know, meeting, uh, a few years after that meeting, you know, the, as I mentioned, Seamus Cooley, who played the band you hear another guy from Galway, uh, Bertie, um, Bertie McMahon from Woodford it was a lovely banjo player. We played in the Cayley band, the Windy City Cayley band <laughs> with, uh, with Bertie and, um, you know, then of course going over to the flaws, you know, I think I think my first fly myself, I think myself and Liz played in a duet, and we were up against uh, Karen Hammerhand, and I forget it, and he had a box player, another one from Claire, I can't think of his name, but we lost to them, and you know every time I see Karen, yeah, oh, yeah we lost, <laughs> you lost. <laughs> but my next year, myself and Liz went back and we won the senior duets, so that was that was probably the. The most fun of any you know competition ah. you know then you know uh a couple of years later i mean obviously knowing mick and um you know uh after that met charlie piggott when he came on the bicentennial folk festival held in 1976 got to play a few tunes with him you know then i moved over to london for when i was at the fly in ennis and decided you know i had i took a, i took an extra week just because I, you know, and I said, well, maybe what I'll do, I'll go over to, to, to London for the weekend because I hadn't been there since I was born, you know, and a year later I'm leaving London. So I ended up staying there almost a year, you know, and because I had a rake of aunts and uncles there, but that's where I got to meet, you know, Brendan Mulcair, the late Brendan Mulcair, you know, and then through that got to know, uh, and play with John Carthy. Mm was still exclusively i think at least publicly exclusively banjo before he started making that transition to uh you know fiddle so but the, i suppose the, the person i played the longest obviously with banjo was mick mick maloney you know and uh you know so i mean yeah that's i'm lucky yeah did you know mick o'connor in london oh mick yeah yeah, in fact, I met Mick before that. Mick came out on an occultist tour, and uh, I forget he was someone was. Yeah, there was a, there was a session. There was a couple of nights of session at at my my folks' house, and we played with Mick. And I think one was with um, Catherine Lowry. I think she was Birmingham, played piano. Yeah, yeah, I remember the house. There were at least one or night, two nights with uh, Mick, Catherine Lowry. Uh, there was probably a couple of fiddle players, myself, Liz Carroll. You know, so you'd have anytime anyone came into town, there was tunes all night long. You know, I mean, a non banjo related to like Kevin Henry, he brought the the Bathy band into Chicago, so we got to see the Bathy band live, and there was there was almost a thousand people at the show at Bogan High School. You know, everyone it was funny. Everyone wearing suits and ties because this is again the seventies, right? So you're going to a concert, you'd have to be dressed up, and of course, you know, it was the seventies and. You know, I think Kevin Burke was on stage with no shoes, you know, but that was, you know, that was just, he felt comfortable doing that. No one would think of that now, but of course, oh, just did they shower at all or just whatever, <laughs> it was like, you know, but I said, I, I said after, even to a good friend of mine, Tom, Tom, uh, Tom Flanning, he said, I can't believe they dressed like that. I said, Tom, I didn't care if they were naked. They, then the music sound great, you know, and, uh, and it was, it was powerful. You know, and uh, I think we, we ended up going back to the 65 11 club and we mustn't have left there until five in the morning. Play it, you know. The two left in was, uh, was, uh, was Matt Malloy and uh, Hattie Keen, and they stayed the longest. Because, you know, people, people were staying with different people at different houses. So, yeah, but that was great, you know. Anyway, I don't even know what I'm talking about there. I think. They were kind of they were kind of rock and roll Irish. I mean, was there any was there any pushback to that kind of music that it wasn't strictly traditional? Well, I mean, well, I suppose some of the elders wouldn't have liked it necessarily, you know. But I mean, I mean, what's what's not like to like what's not to like about Matt Malloy's flute player? You know, 
or Trina singing or, you know, uh, Michal's guitar playing or even singing in Irish, you know, when they were singing in Irish, it's, you know, it was just a different time. I was kind of more, I suppose, growing up, it was more in the Daydanen camp. You know, I was more of a Daydanen head than it would have been a uh, Bathy band. But I mean, I'm not saying that's, I mean, Bathy band was great. It's just a matter of, you know, just a slightly different taste, you know. And plus they had boxes in the, they're down. And banjos. Well, even though Tony, even though it wasn't at one point that Tony McMahon was supposed to be in an earlier version, wasn't he in an earlier version, which became the Bathy band? I don't know. I don't think there was something, something like that anyway. You know? So when did you meet Mick Maloney first? 74, 1974. He came out to do the, uh, he had just moved here from uh, from Philadelphia, or he just moved to Philadelphia, I think, maybe 72 or 73, to uh, start graduate school. He was going to go do his uh, PhD in folk life and folklore. You know, what, yeah. That's no musicology, I suppose, but it's probably folk life and whatever the department it's under. And uh, he came out to Chicago to do a um, field research interviewing uh, all the musicians in Chicago. He did the same thing in New York, obviously, and he, at this point he had come out to Chicago. So that's that's when I that's when I met him. And, uh, you know, we became buddies ever since. You know, and then a couple of years later, he invited uh, myself, my dad, Liz uh, Carroll, Michael Flatley, Jaime McGreevy, uh, Seamus Cooley, Mary Cooley. Oh, there was, I think there was maybe 10 or 12 or 13 from Chicago to play at the Bicentennial Folk Festival in Washington, you know, and that's, so that was our first like out of state, like real kind of official gig, even though, you know, we had played at a couple of out of state feshes, but that's not the same thing. I mean, actually doing concerts and being showcased as opposed to, you know, supplying music for another function like set dancers or step dancers, which is fine too. But you know, it's you being the focus instead of the dance being the focus in those cases, you know, mm -hmm. you know, so we just kept in touch and, you know, Nick was back and forth all the time. And, you know, the next thing I got a call from, uh, I got a call from Mick. Hey, you know, uh, we're going on tour uh, in, uh, in uh, January to California. And it's supposed to be myself, Mick, meaning and Robbie O'Connell and my namesake, James Keener, as I call him, Big James, you know, uh, the late Sean Keene's uh, uh, brother. But James couldn't do the tour, but they had all this publicity material out already. And at that time, I had hair, long <laughs> hair. I wore glasses. I had a beard. James had, you know, play the accordion. James, Big James, glasses, long hair, beard, a little skinnier. But, you know, in a picture, you can't tell. Play the accordion. And I said, sure, I'll do it, you know. And it was it was, it was was great, you know. Uh, you know, we started exchanging tapes. And and so that became, we ended up playing then together for years, you know. And uh, I, the funny thing, people, when we went out to California, we'd, we'd meet people that knew James, for example, in, uh, in Dublin. And they'd be talking to me as if I was James, because it had been so many years. You know, one guy came up that I think one name, one time James, his name was Skip, nickname, right? So they come, hey, Skip, it's been years since I've seen you. And I would, all of a sudden, I would, you know, at the start, I was saying, oh, no, no, I'm Jimmy Keen. But then I said, hell, I'm just going to play along. <laughs> and then tell him at the end, see, see if I was going to get any, any good bit of juicy gossip. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. And that led to recording with Mick and Robbie and then the resurgence of the Greenfields of America. And yeah, in fact, you know, it's just sad. We had just, um, we just remastered and, and fixed up the, the three albums I did with Mick and Robbie, you know, just, you know, a, a year before Mick died. And so, and Mick liked him, you know, and, and so we reissued him and we had talked about, he and I had talked about possibly doing the rest of his stuff that he had did for Green Linnet and, you know, fixing them up and just, you know, because as you say, everything's digital now, right? So, yeah, so that never happened. Yeah, he's a huge loss. Yeah, did you, I mean, did you, I mean, I I know you, did you, yeah, because we played, that, that band you were up in, in, uh, 
in Milwaukee. Hey, you joined us for uh, myself and Mick, I think, for a set at one point. Yeah, I mean, I met yeah. Mick a few times. He wrote the foreword to my first book when he was oh, when he was still in, in, in NYU. But I don't think I ever... I, I had him on such a pedestal. I was like, oh my God, it's Professor Mick Maloney that I need to... You know, those first couple of years going to Milwaukee as a young band, I'd kind of go, you know, kind of half afraid to talk to him. But I feel like I missed I missed out. I didn't, I never really got to know Mick very well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like in those cases, you know, he's he's he was the nicest guy that you could actually ever meet, you know. And, you know, I mean, he was a diddle, you know. He was, you know, he... If if you need to be, he rolled around in the gutter with you if you wanted, right? So it wasn't a case of you know, oh, you know, where's my ascot? No, it, there was none of that stuff. You know, he was, he, you know, he was, he was from Limerick. You know, he played the banjo. I mean, how lower can you go? <laughs> Sorry, dude. You know, I'm sorry. We 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 talked about that. Uh, because you know, I was with him the, the the fortunately and unfortunately because he's no longer here. I was with him the last two weeks of his life. We were on a plane up in New York, and I got to spend, um, you know, we just spent a week hanging out in New York City in this place at Greenwich Village. And in one of the drives, he was mentioning that you know, uh, 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 talking about Buddha, Buddhism, right, whatever, and. And he said, you know, that people don't die, you know, they they just, their spirit goes on and comes back is something else. And they said, you know, he was going on and explained this. So he said, Jim, so that Mick, does that mean you're going to come back as a non-banjo player? <laughs> hey, fuck you. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cry. I shouldn't have cursed. About you can edit that out. Curse away, I don't mind. Um, oh, that's so funny. Well, yeah. Depends on how much... Uh, karma he needs to work on he could come back as a piano accordion player for a brief stint <laughs> no 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 that's not happening no jim is it do you do is it full-time music did you ever do any other jobs or do you do you do another job or would no, you like you know, to? yeah i was i was uh i was a, an iron worker for years and then i had an argument with the scaffold but this is back in the 80s and you know then i so i went back to school i got a you know i was on the 20-year plan you know, so I eventually got a bachelor's degree in 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 uh, in marketing, but you know, I, you know, I've done a little odd things here and there, but for the most part, I was playing music. You know, so, and recently with um, the Irish Rovers, who were on their farewell tour for about ten years, I think. Yeah, yeah, lo lovely guys, and you know, it was great. But speaking of banjo, Shane Farrell. Yeah, and it was it was great playing with uh, Shane every night, you know. Yeah, and, uh, a lovely kid, lovely musician, and um, yeah, that that was yeah that was quite the experience, you know. I mean, I think we saw parts of Canada that most Canadians haven't, you know. And it was two months, and you know, we basically went through we we drove through four time zones, as you know, driving and transversing the states, so it'd be the same thing, right? And, you know, playing, we played every night. Every show was sold out. You know, I mean, you know, George and, uh, you know, lovely people, you know. George did, Miller. He, yeah, I mean, you guys, you you did a few shows with them before, right? Yeah, we, we did a week of shows down the West Coast. Uh, yeah. Through Washington State and Oregon. You couldn't meet nicer guys. Yeah. From from George all the way down. Uh, Sean was their banjo player at the time. Oh, Sean! Oh, man, is a trout. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's a he was a terrific player, really great player. Oh yeah, I used to love playing with Chicago with Sean when he lived up in uh, Minneapolis. You know, we'd either go up there or he'd be down to Chicago, so playing Junes with Sean and maybe having a few odd jars every once in a while. Yeah, you know, Sean was a great banjo player. Yeah, great player. I was yeah. remember George's wife would bring in the. Big, the big, uh, the big box with all, with all of the paraphernalia for the tea. Oh yes, yes, the tea is yes. very important. And the biscuits. It shifted to a bag, one of these grocery bags, you know, with the you know, recyclable, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Barry's tea. Yeah. Barry's tea. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, musically, was there something that you love? You'd love to do? Like, have you? Have you a mad dream for a band or for a performance or somewhere you that you've never got to play that you'd love to play? 
You know, I suppose yeah, for some, I'd, I'd start with something that will never happen. I'd like to play with an orchestra. You know? But, but aside from that, no, I mean, I've been lucky. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I played with anyone, basically, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I love when people come in and, you know, encourage you. Like, if I'm running a session or when I run a session, you know, some someone comes in, it's great because I make them play all the tunes that night, right? What tune are you working on now? What's that one, you know? Because, I mean, it's great for me. It refreshes, especially if it's a tune that I hadn't heard or learned. So it's it's a new source of, you know? challenging instead of you know jimmy playing the tunes that jimmy plays and no one else plays them what good is that right so yeah but it's always nice playing with new people you know but like anything and the other fortunate thing it takes time to do it well you know unless unless you're unless you just get the right the right moment and the right person it's gonna it takes time to develop that language between the instrument whatever the instrument is you know even you know even the banjo right and, you know, it's funny because so much of the stuff I do became influenced by Mick. You know, I went from playing triplets. I mean, went from playing roles for the majority of the time on tunes to actually playing triplets. You know, just from the, you know, the plectrum stuff or however Mick held it or whatever it is. Up, to, up, up, down, up one, down two, or is it down two, up one? What is it? I don't know. Down, up, down. Oh, is it down, up one? Oh, it's just back and forth? Yeah. Well, I, that's what I do anyway. Sure. Yeah. I thought he did, and you do the same thing for a jig. I think so. Yeah. That's the way I would do a triplet: is down, up, down. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, yeah. I was trying to think about how it did. Anyway, yeah. But you know, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I got to play. I mean, you know, on the box side, got to play with Joe Burke, got to play with Marcin O'Connor, got to play with Jackie Daly, got to play with Finbar Dwyer. You know, uh, Patty O'Brien, young Patty O'Brien that's uh, from Offley. Yes. Not really. I've never really played with uh, Patty O'Brien from Nina. You know? But I mean, yeah, it's, it's I mean, that's in the, in the box side. And of course, there's so many great young musicians now. And, you know, and because... all the fiddle players, you know, I mean, as I said, growing up with Liz Kerr, I mean, that's it's kind of hard to go any place after that. Yeah. And, and not in, not, in, not not saying that in a bad sense because I mean there's such I mean you know I, I love Martin Hayes's playing I love your brother Fergal's playing I love you know Frankie Gavin's playing I love Paddy Glacken's playing I love you know there's all you know do you still come back to Ireland? Well, last time I was back was uh, uh, 2019. Myself and uh, Liz Carroll played at the uh, the Trad Fest, so that was the last time. And the two times before that, I was there. Um, was there with Mick. Uh, 2016, we did the uh, uh, Centennial program at the National Concert Hall. Myself, Mick, and uh, Robbie, and uh, Athena um, Turgis joined us. We did uh, we did the 22-minute uh, Irish operetta, the uh, uh, the Greenfields of America. It was all different songs, you know, snippets of songs and tunes that we put together uh representing you know different themes working in america the irish working uh immigration you know leaving you know songs about going home which are rare at that time but uh you know and and it, you know we started with the green fields of america as an air the the tune the song and ended with the ended with the last verse of the irish i think I, well, if i haven't sent it to you i'll send i'll send you the i'll send you the downloads from anyway yeah too please yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, you know, you, anyone that's, anyone's coming to Chicago, come down to a session and, you know, Jimmy will play with you, you know, mm -hmm. you know if, where you have to wear these things like this so you don't hear the freaking accordion, but it's good. <laughs> Sorry, Spandler, they're deaf in one ear anyway. <laughs> what? <laughs> you nearly got, nearly got me. Uh, will will Bahola make a comeback? Well, Pan might still play, right? You know, it's just, yeah. I mean, thanks. I mean, you know, thanks for having us uh, when you were in Chicago last year for March. That was great. Except Jimmy realized after we got on stage that Jimmy was sitting on the wrong side of Pat. <laughs> I, and then he said, oh, sh poop, what am I going to do? 
He said, no, you'd be all right. Because, you know, I usually lean in to what Pat's doing, except then he was over here. <laughs> so Pat was standing next to me like this, so he could hear. And I said, should we change? He said, no, let's not disrupt the, let's not disrupt the system. <laughs> but I said, like, damn, I can't hear what Pat's doing. <laughs> it's, you know, I rely on, you know, rely on listening, actually physically listen to the person next to you. I know you guys have the in-ears. You know, I was wearing in-ears with the with um, with the rovers, and it's great because you, you know you could tune in everyone. But then I'd have one out because I wanted to hear it acoustically. Yeah, you know, I just grew up that way. You know, and uh, but yeah, yeah. But thank, thank you very much for 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 inviting us up. It was a pleasure. It was um, it was an honor for us. Um, and I, you know, getting to play with you in Milwaukee a couple of times over the years. Such oh, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that's always madness, and that's the one place that you don't want to play with one, one ear out. I would always play with one ear out because I like to hear the banjo acoustically as well. Yeah, if you do if you do that on stage in Milwaukee, it's like standing in front of a jet plane or something. So out on stage, <laughs> well, especially with the gatherings, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you you'll be back at Milwaukee this year, yeah? not this year, no, no. No, I, I, you know, I did it last year because I went up there to do a tribute to Mick, you know, and not knowing, you know, that, that yeah, I mean, that was before Marianne passed away, or, you know, our dear Marianne, as, as you know, called her the god, the godmother of Irish music, you know, yeah. you know, and of course, yeah, I don't know, you know, I suppose the best thing that we had a chance to know them all, you know, I didn't even mention Dennis, Dennis Cow. I mean, Dennis Mick. I mean, I knew Dennis Mick and Marianne extremely well. I mean, you know, but, but I'd have the opportunity to see Marianne and Dennis for the most part, more often than you would Marianne. But anytime you were, I mean, that was your, that was your home address from home. Yep. You know? Yeah. This is turning into a lovely conversation. Well, you know, it's lovely what you said that it's it's such a gift to get to know these people. And you know, I didn't know Mick very well, but I, I knew of him musically, the stature. Dennis, I was mesmerized. He's the most magnetic guitar player that I have ever watched. And I got to see him with Martin Hayes in twenty nineteen in Galway in the Roshin Dove. And it's the standout concert that I've ever been to in my life. I've never I've never witnessed anything like it. There's only maybe 150 people and how they just took the room in and held them for 90 minutes without a breath. And De Dennis was mesmerizing. Yeah. Marianne is the sweetest person I ever met. You know? yeah. It's funny, Dennis, you know, he, he could do so much by playing so little, right? But he was doing an awful lot in that time when he was playing little. You know, I mean, he was, I mean, some of his hand configurations. I said, Dennis, what's that chord? He said, well, I don't know. You're going to go like this and like this. And then all of a sudden I say, are you playing Twister? What are you doing? You know, Twister's. The, yeah. Put your yeah. Le left hand on that button or whatever. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't play guitar, but uh, what, what I, what I know from so many years of playing is that it's an extra level of genius to play so little on an instrument that you can play so much on. Yeah. And to communicate so much with so little, just like you said, but to actually to have the, um, what's the word, the discipline to just sink into the music to that level of simplicity, because what 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 he did was was mesmerizing every time. We would play the gloaming with Martin. It was it was incredible music. The thing, and what the thing Dennis actually wanted to do, and he was working on constantly, was actually just playing the tunes. You know, he would say. You know, whenever he did a workshop, you got to know, and, and this makes perfect sense, right? You got to know the tune that you're playing. So Dennis would play the tune. They said, he said, Jimmy, I'm working on this tune. He said, what do you think? You know, because, you know, he's playing, he wasn't retuning as a guitar and he wasn't capoing it up. So he was playing, if the tune was in D, he'd be playing, you know, instead of, you know, if, if we're, you're playing GDAE, I would imagine, right, for your tuning. And, you know, but he was playing regular standard guitar tuning and he'd be picking up the tunes and he'd be trying to do little rolls of race. That's best way to do the pick, you know, and whatever. And he was constantly working on that, you know, 
And uh, you know, I have a couple of I have a couple of tapes of him doing. Hopefully, we're going to do some kind of tribute to Dennis. But I mean, he was that was that was his that that's that was his shining star. He wanted to do, you know, sit down and play the session, or sit down and do do it in concert. You know, I mean, and ultimately be able to accompany himself somehow. And he probably would have figured out a way to do that. He could do it obviously on the slower tunes while picking out the notes, right? But to actually do that it, without messing around, you know, dropping the drop D or something in to get a little drone going, he wanted to do that kind of stuff. So that was that was that was Dennis's focus, you know. Anyway, yeah, I miss the guy dearly, and all of me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, not to say, not to end on a sad note, but I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. And uh, it's been lovely chatting to you, Jimmy. It's a pleasure. It's 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 been. It's been an honor to get to know you because, like I said, there was a time in my car, and I remember it distinctly, texting Martin Howley, going, Bahola, this is the most amazing music. I want, my dream is to play with Jimmy Keane. And that's not a joke. I don't say that to blow smoke up your ass. You're a nightmare. You're a nightmare. You're a nightmare. I mean it. And I did it. And it was, it was, and when I did it, it was amazing. Well, thank you, thank you, kind for saying that, Edna. I'll I'll send you when I'm finished this stuff. I'll, I'll send you the I'll send you the uh, the collection. Oh yes, please, yes please. But you know, I but the same thing, you know, you know, I, I'm I'm just to to see the, the the new medium that you really helped create within the Irish thing. I don't think anyone is doing as close to what you're doing between all the. I love the thing where you have the the the. Uh, where the notes come across the screen and all this stuff. I mean, I, I love tech, right? To begin with. I mean, I play by ear. So right, what notes, I don't know. Now I know my ABCs. That's about it. Right. <laughs> and not those ABCs, just the one that you make words with. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to see, great to see that and great to hear it when I can, you know, and I love the interview you did with, with Pauline. Oh, Pauline is grace. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we'll be laughing. We'll be laughing about this tonight. When you know, when I joined Pauline in about uh, six hours, so, uh, this is recorded anyway. Yeah, yeah. We'll give her a huge hug for me because she's yeah. she's a gorgeous person. Yeah, great time for Pauline. I, I'm her her brother Mick. I play a good bit with Mick, and, and we have that same because he's such a good musician. We play a tune four times round. It's different every single time. Yeah, and he's just you know it's just all weaving around. I love it. Brilliant. It's great. Yeah. And Pauline's the same way. And it's, it's great. The, the funny thing is we'll get to a tune. We'll think of a tune that we haven't played together for years or she or I haven't played for years. We'll get there. And then we get to the second part. Is it, what's the second part? And if you won one note off, you'd be in the second part, some other two, then we'd stop. Okay. Which is like, no, it's this one. No, it's this one. <laughs> so I said, Pauline, we're ready at the first parts. Not so much in the second parts. <laughs> Never mind the third part tunes or fourth part tunes, we'd be completely gone. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I thought that was just my superpower, which was to keep consistently get lost in, in the parts of tunes. And I, I could end up in a fourth tune that sometimes kind of going, oh, what is happening? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it all makes sense as long as you don't stop. No one's going to know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're that bare nation he did. How did that slip you come in the middle of that hornpipe? I don't know, but it's great. <laughs> Well, that's just a modern take on the tune. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just jazz. It's jazz. Listen, <laughs> oh, it's great to talk to you. And uh, sorry, sorry I won't see you this summer, but you never know what's down the road. Great. Good luck. Be well. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. Fantasy Points.